This is the Always the Critic podcast where a couple of friends review the latest movies except we literally have zero qualifications to do so. Jessica, we are back for week two of Hitchcock. I can't believe it. We watched a lot of Hitchcock this week. We watched another four movies of his. And honestly, I'm really excited to continue the series because watching... Hitchcock and learning more about uh, this era of his filmmaking is just has been a real treat. I don't know about you, but yes, it has been. And being able to see how his influence has uh, basically taken hold in current Hollywood and being able to recognize, like, oh, I can tell what he's doing here because I've seen another director do it, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's very interesting so uh i mentioned it we're on week two right Mm -hmm. yeah we're on week two of our atc percents hitchcock series um last episode was week one we covered alfred hitchcock's childhood in the east end of london with his extremely strict parents who definitely scarred him with the traumatic punishments they inflicted on him for misbehaving we covered his schooling and early career throughout the 20s and 30s we stopped to talk at length about four movies we watched during that era. Black Mail from 1929, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 34, The 39 Steps from 1935, and The Lady Vanishes from 1938. And with that, we're ready to dive into the next decade in Hitchcock's career, so the 1940s. As we mentioned in the last episode, The Lady Vanishes from 1938, it gave rise to Hitchcock signing a long-term contract with prolific producer David O. Selznick. Uh, We mentioned last week that he did a lot of movies, uh, some movies you may have heard of like King Kong and uh, I believe (laughs) Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. You know, those little movies. Uh, Hitchcock made one last movie in England. And then he was off to Hollywood. So Hollywood. Uh, now living <laughs> oh, in the bright people lights. People don't know uh, about that. No, they, they don't. Know. They may not know. Uh, if if you live in Orlando and know of Hollywood Studios, you know that. Uh, yes. Now living in the bright lights of La La Land, he released his first stateside film in 1940, Rebecca. Okay, the letterbox synopsis for Rebecca is as follows. The shadow of this woman darkened their love. Story of a young woman who marries a fascinating widower only to find out that she must live in the shadow of his former wife, Rebecca, who died mysteriously only a year earlier. The wife, the young wife, must come to grips with the terrible secret of her handsome, cold husband, Max DeWinter. She must also deal with the jealous, obsessed Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper, who will not accept her as the mistress of the house. So this movie stars Laurence Olivier as Maxim de Winter, Joan Fontaine as Mrs. de Winter. Uh, Funny enough, no first name, just Mrs. de Winter. Yes. Uh, And Judith Anderson and Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper. Uh, The story, it's based on a book by author Daphne Dumarier. I believe is how you pronounce it. (laughs) Uh, Producer Selznick bought the rights to the novel for $50,000, which at that time must have been quite a bit. And specifically wanted Carol Lombard and Ronald Coleman to star. Uh, When that casting fell apart, Olivier was cast as well as the rest of the acclaimed actors. All right. So let's talk about this movie because we both watched Rebecca. What did you think about Rebecca? Okay, so this movie is interesting uh, for the fact that, number one, it won Best Picture 
1940. Um, When I watched the movie, I kind of had like high hopes for it because of the fact that, you know, oh, best picture winner, all Uh this, all that. Uh And I don't know, it kind of fell short of expectations (gasps) from what I thought. Oh, my God. What Hitchcock was going to be. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I thought it was it was good. Um, But you know what kind of bothered me the most? What, was, okay, what bothered you? Was Laurence Olivier's like portrayal of the character. Uh, mm. I don't know. It just felt a little too aloof uh, okay. for for most of the for most of the movie. He was. It just seemed like he was a little too aloof uh, for a person who had just like lost his wife in the past year. Um, obviously, the movie reveals itself, but I don't know. I just didn't like the way he portrayed that movie for like seventy five percent of it. It came together finally at the end, but later on, I just don't know. I just had a hard time getting past his portrayal of of that part. I sort of completely disagree with you because I found his performance really mysterious and um, crazy. I I just thought that I believed that they fell in love and that they got married really fast and that he had cared for her the second mrs de winter but i think it kind of the only part that it fell apart for me was that he was kind of just left her to sink or swim in this like estate of his with this full staff of servants and people that wait on her hand and foot and he's just like oh yeah let them take care of everything but like what does she do all day like what does he expect her to handle why are they not sleeping in the same room? Like, it was just very, like, okay, they had this whirlwind romance and a beautiful honeymoon, and then it's just like, okay, here, just live the rest of your life in comfort and, like, don't bother me. So that's when I was a little bit, like, I I felt for Rebecca because Rebecca was such a... I mean, Joan Fontaine played her so well. I I was compelled to sympathize with her and be on her side and totally agree with her with that Mrs. Danvers is like this crazy woman in the house that is scary. He was like, he couldn't understand why she thought Mrs. Danvers was scary. And I was like, what the hell? Have you looked at Mrs. Danvers lately? Like Just looking at her. Just looking at her, you like just get this creepy, scared vibe. She was extremely menacing. And um, I just I just thought Joan Fontaine brought a lot to that role. And she was so uh, like a doe eyed deer in the forest about to be shot, like at all times. Like she was just so shy and painfully awkward and timid. And it was it worked so well for me to have Rebecca be such a like foreboding giant figure that loomed over her at all times and even though like a monogrammed blanket or whatever it was and um a sealed off bedroom wouldn't normally upset somebody um she was so um sensitive she was such a sensitive person that it really posed a threat to her and then on top of everything mrs danvers just driving home the point that she could never be Rebecca and live up to this persona that was larger than life. Um, 
I thought the movie worked completely. I was like enamored of everything that going on and the dynamics between her and the staff and her and the house because she liked the house. She thought it was beautiful, but then she got went inside and everything just smells and reeks of Rebecca. So like, what does she do? Can she change stuff? She doesn't feel like she has authority. It was amazing. I mean, I, I thought that uh, Lawrence Olivier was like the least of the problems really for her you know she had so much to worry about and i i was i was so into this movie i i loved it yeah she is great in this role joan fontaine which we're going to talk about her again because uh she's in the next movie but in this part she is fantastic don't get me wrong i loved everything she was doing with the role she's the one that kept me captivated with the movie not necessarily Lawrence olivier's character of maxim de winter Mm -hmm. um funny enough i think the producer selznick he was (laughs) unhappy with Lawrence olivier's performance and he wanted Hitchcock to like slow down his lines, like in post, like slow down his delivery of lines. Because and, he was very uh, quick. Yeah. Yeah. And do certain Snappy. things like that tricks to make his performance different than what he had actually done. Um, so maybe you're in Seltznik's camp versus I, I'm on maybe. Hitchcock's camp. Right. That's, that's what it <laughs> seems like. Um, how did you feel about the reveal of what exactly happened to the titular Rebecca. Right. So uh, they had a plot twist. You think he killed Rebecca. He ends up not having technically killed her. She just kind of smacks her head and dies. And then he was like, no one's going to believe me (laughs) that I didn't kill her. Um, So he covers up for this sudden death. Yeah. Exactly. so there isn't a murder, but there is a cover-up. And then uh, I after did like, that... I liked when, when she said, I know you loved Rebecca, and they have this. she's having like this heart-to-heart with him in the beach shack or whatever, and he said, you thought I loved Rebecca? I hated her. And I was like, holy shit, what? Here we go. Here we go. I was like all in for the drama. Ready to go. Yes. Yes. And so then after that, we get another reveal, which is that it's Rebecca's cousin who has suspicions of everything going on. Right. And he tries to uncover that she was murdered. And so mm-hmm. the entire thing is he, because she was uh, having um, extramarital affairs and was never truly in love with him. She was like an right. evil like person. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he he basically hitches his wagon to the theory that something happened with a person in London, which they have to now, you know, he gets the police involved. They go to London to interview that that person. And it turns out to be a doctor. And mm-hmm. so. I guess she she basically makes up well doesn't make up she she pretends to be Mrs. Danvers during the appointment right. and it turns out that she has cancer. Yeah, they thought she was pregnant. They were riding on her being pregnant which would have given her a reason to live and not right. commit and not suicide. Commit which suicide. was the narrative that they were trying to push on the police is that she committed suicide. Right. And no, she had terminal cancer. And had months to live. And months to live. 
And she had told the doctor, oh, it's not going to be that long. So there goes their theory of um, her being pregnant and him killing her. Like, no, she wanted to die, essentially. She did. She wanted to die, supposedly, uh, based on everything that they were able to get. And that's really how, well, almost how the movie ends. And it's because we still have one last thing, and it's because (laughs) Mrs. Danvers goes nuts (laughs) and burns the chateau down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and okay yeah it's wild it's wild okay so i developed a really quick hitchcock questionnaire because last episode i kept mentioning the same freaking things every time that it was like is there a murder yes is there a blonde uh girl in the movie yes different things like that so here is my questionnaires and we're just going to answer them for this movie real quick before moving on. Sure. Is there a murder? Yes or no? No, but not, not in the technical sense, but <laughs> yes, there is a cover sense. up. Yeah. But there's a cover up and a murder investigation. Is there a blonde protagonist? Yes, there is. Yes. Mrs. DeWinter II is blonde. Rebecca, however, had black hair. Yes. Don't but we don't see means. her, so it doesn't it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> no. Is there a character on the run? No, but Mr. DeWinter is trying to evade being blamed for Rebecca's death. Right. Any foreboding shadows? Yes. For especially sure. with Mrs. De- Mrs. DeWinter and Mrs. Danvers together. Um, is there an ominous staircase? Yes, there yes. was a staircase that Mrs. DeWinter walks up and down, and on the far side is Rebecca's sealed bedroom, basically in the West, the West Wing. Wing. <laughs> Very Beauty and the Beast-like. Is there a train? No. No, unfortunately, Does, not in this one. Not in this one. Does a character whistle? I don't remember if somebody whistled. Do you? No, not in this one. Okay. Was there at least one handwritten note? Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think there were a few. Um, did we see a newspaper headline? No, but the newspaper is referred to. Uh, the line that Maxim says is, have a look at the Times. There's a thrilling article on what's the matter with English cricket, which <laughs> I think alludes to the boys from the Lady Vanishes who were super into cricket. Is super into cricket. Yeah. Um, is there a gripping climax possibly at an iconic landmark? No iconic landmark. But if you count an enormous inferno burning down an estate, then yeah, there was a gripping climax for sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay, let's talk casting what ifs for a sec. Back then, this is drama, by the way, Lawrence Olivier wanted his then-girlfriend Vivian Leigh to play opposite him. You know Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Another Salt Snake picture. Yeah, you know all about Vivian. Vivian and Olivier got married in 1940, but they were still dating when casting was happening. So when Joan Fontaine got the part, Olivier treated her horribly, which shook up poor Joan, who was a relative newcomer. And Hitchcock, being the opportunist, told Joan everyone on set hated her, which made her performance that much better as a shy, uneasy, nervous girl. Exactly what the role called for. Oh, that is ridiculous. That is just diabolical. But at the same time, if you're going to get the best out of someone, I I see. Now, there's a couple of fun facts about Mrs. Danvers. Now, this is per Hitchcock's instructions judith anderson uh she rarely blinks her eyes Mm -hmm. and she is hardly ever seen walking she seems to glide there's like a way about her that she's not 
even possessing like normal human traits almost. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it makes her seem otherworldly, which is yes. very crazy. Oh, I do have one more thing. Speaking of casting what ifs, um, here's a funny thing. Did you know that this movie is being remade and is coming out? Shut up. By Netflix. Shut up. And do you want to know who is in it? Yes. Tell me right now. So I am going to give you the two leads um, because you know who they are. And so uh, so Maxim DeWinter will be played by Army Hammer. Oh, shit. And Mrs. DeWinter is being played by Lily James. Lily James. From Baby Driver. Also from she was in Cinderella, the live action remake as well. Yeah, so, she's got so that you know doe-eyed look. <laughs> right, So, which that character kind of needs in a way. So mm-hmm. a bit of a casting what if there, if you will. Wow. I cannot wait. We have to come back and do- review that, Rebecca. Yes, we do. 100%. Okay, the production for Rebecca was a bit plagued. Filming started just five days after the UK joined World War II, oh, and Jesus. Hitchcock's own perfectionism caused scheduling delays. He refused to rehearse while the crew set up lights, which is a common standard at the time, and he said he found the noise distracting. Oof, <laughs> man, that talk about perfectionist. Now, not to mention the clashing of titans that happened between the producers uh, Salznick and Hitchcock. It yes. was their first movie together, and Hitchcock was basically pissed about <laughs> Selznick's obsessive, controlling manner of producing. Also, Hitchcock preferred to cut the movie in camera, meaning he had the final cut already worked out in his head before shooting. So there were no superfluous shots, extra real, or complete shots that might make the movie edit together a variety of ways. He didn't do that. He filmed only as much as he needed and then moved on. And this drove Selznick crazy. (laughs) Hitchcock and cinematographer George Barnes used a technique known as deep focus photography in this movie. The depth of field is so large that the foreground, middle ground, and background are all in focus. This is one of the few movies that used that technique before Citizen Kane in 1941. And Rebecca was a major influence on Citizen Kane. Wow, only one year later. Yep. Now... In the end, the film was hugely successful, both critically and commercially. Rebecca was nominated for a whopping 11 Academy Awards, including Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Screenplay, and of course, Best Director. Uh, That Best Director kept eluding Mr. Hitchcock. (laughs) It was Hitchcock's first nomination for Best Director, and it ended up winning two Oscars, one for Best Cinematography, and the other for the top award, Best Picture, as I mentioned before. Now, Rebecca currently has a 100% Rotten Tomatoes score and a 92% audience score. And a fun little observation, one of the people that worked on the sound design for the movie, his name was Jack Noise, which I thought no. was just hilarious. <laughs> but it's not spelled noise, but it's pronounced not, noise. Not quite, but it's pronounced noise for sure. <laughs> All right, Hitchcock did Foreign Correspondent in 1940, which featured assassinations, Nazis, and a kidnapped diplomat. Sounds a little like Indiana Jones, but I digress. I did manage to watch the plane crash scene, which was extremely well done and terrifying. Did you? It's on YouTube. Did you manage no, to watch I, it? No, I didn't get okay. around to watching it. I was, like, surprised because I've seen my fair share of, like, plane crash. Like, you know, I watched Lost when that was on, uh, Castaway. Uh, you, you, there's so many, but this one 
was particularly crazy. Um, it, it was, it was really well done. Um, Hitchcock then turned to straightforward comedy for 1941's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. No, the plot has nothing to do with spies, like in the 2005 movie with Angelina Jolie <laughs> and Brad Pitt. Not the same thing at all. Foreign Correspondent did get nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, but it didn't win any. Ah, uh, that stinks. That sucks. Uh, <laughs> and especially for a straightforward comedy, you don't see like a comedy, like especially nowadays, like get any recognition like that. Mm. Now, his next movie was a return to the genre he loved and excelled in most suspense. In 1941, Suspicion. It's based on the 1932 novel Before the Fact by Francis Isles, mm -hmm. a.k.a. Anthony Berkeley. Yeah, Instead, Francis was his... <laughs> yeah, was his... Uh, uh, what's it called? Yes. Yeah, so instead of a murder mystery, the book was more of a psychological thriller, pretty experimental for the time. Suspicion marks Hitchcock's first time as producer as well as director. Mm -hmm. uh, the movie is about the wealthy, sheltered Lena McLaidlaw, who gets swept off her feet by the charming playboy Johnny Aysgarth. Uh, Lena marries him against her family's wishes and finds that Johnny is a gold digger and gambler. <laughs> Gradually, she becomes or she comes to suspect that Johnny intends to kill her to collect her inheritance. Uh, Suspicion does star Cary Grant as Johnny and Joan Fontaine. There she is again from Rebecca. And she plays Lena. Okay. So, uh, Jessica, what do you think one. of it? It was OK. Um, mm, yes. I wasn't too thrilled with it. I thought that. It left a lot to be desired, especially because there wasn't... I didn't find that there was a payoff. No. At the no, end of there the wasn't. movie. Like, no. I was expecting a full-on murder. There was, Spoiler alert, there wasn't a murder. So um, No, not at all. It felt like we were being strung along a little bit. What did you, what did you think about the movie? I really thought that we were going to get something in the end, whether it was... Um, Obviously, you're listening to us, so spoilers on this. Um, I really thought we were either going to get uh, the payoff of Jan Johnny's going to go to jail for either, you know, the money he hasn't paid back mm -hmm. or for possibly killing his best friend or yeah. getting away with murdering Joan Fontaine. But then I thought, I don't think he's going to murder her. And then when we get to the end, nothing happens. It was it, yeah. It's all in her mind, really. It's mm -hmm. basically like a lot of... Uh, I can't even say gaslighting unless you picture it it's, from Johnny's point of, of view. Suspicion. But yeah. <laughs> ha ha. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of suspicion. It's a lot yeah. about what happens when you start putting thoughts into your head and you have false confirmation. You know? I just thought that it was, I hated Cary Grant. I just hated that guy oh, like, so hate much. Yeah, he's, he's so unlikable. Hey there, monkey face. Hey there, monkey face. And I'm like, get out of my face right now. Like, I don't know how Awful. she like put up with it. And I don't the know constant how, lying. No, I don't think I bought into the romance at all. It was another scary, quick wedding. And yes. she eloped with him. And it was Pretty just much. like, I think the best part of the whole movie is when they come back from their honeymoon and he presents her with this elaborate house and she's like, oh, well, how are we going to pay for this house? And he's like, well, of course, we're going to use your father's money or your, the general's money or whatever. And she's like, um, my allowance can't pay for this house. 
Yeah. One of the renovations that you did to it, and he was just like, oh, well, I'll just borrow it. I'll just borrow the money. And she's like, no, you have to get a job. And he's like, why would I want to get one of those? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That is wild. You know what I'm I, saying? I, like, it was just like, ugh, why is she with this douche? Yeah, I know. I, I didn't understand that. And she seems so even keeled as well. Like, she played it so, like, it was totally different from Rebecca. But Right. Oh my God, like she had a good head on her shoulders and she was still like eating shit. <laughs> you, you know what, what it is? It, it, she overheard her parents being like, oh, she's going to be a spinster. She's not the marrying type. Yeah, and she so, got scared into like getting with this pl- obvious playboy who was like, I don't, I don't even know like why she would think that this was like a good idea. Then she was going to leave him. It was like this whole thing. Like... She was on the right track when she wrote that letter that she was going to leave him. And then she was, she thought about it. She was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> Why and should I want to better up. my situation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think overall, I think this movie uh, plays around a lot with uh, certain things that Hitchcock does, which is, you know, a lot of intrigue, a lot of, you know, suspicion, you know, putting pieces together and maybe there's something. But at the end, it just doesn't come together at all. Just like mm-hmm. you said, um, he doesn't, you know, commit the murder that she thinks she's he's going to commit. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has in her head, he's going to kill me by throwing me out of the car, you know, off of the cliff. Right. And then well, at first like, she thinks he's going to poison her. Right. That's also and true. He, and then she just never drinks the milk. So he could never have. Drinks. He could he have. He could have put something in there, but she just never even risked it. She didn't even drink the glass of milk that he brought up to her. Right. And so I think uh, this is a good time to like answer some of the questions from the questionnaire. So yes. first off, is there a murder? Yes or no? Well, well maybe because yes. according to Johnny, he wasn't with their friend when he died of drinking too much brandy, which everyone knew would cause these like seizures of some sort. But yeah. did Johnny kill Lena by the end of the movie? No. Yeah. So but like a main murder. Exactly. He could do it later. Like the thing is, like we don't know if Johnny is telling the truth. He's a pa- like a, a pathological uh, liar. Pathological liar. So why should she believe that he wasn't with the friend and killed him essentially? So Ex- exactly. Technically, so, no. Technically, no. But again, this movie could, depending on how you view it, you could mm-hmm. see it as he possibly committed murder off screen. Now, is there a blonde protagonist? Yes. yes. Lena is blonde. Joan Fontaine. <laughs> uh, now, is the character on the run? No. No. Uh, because he's, I mean, no, he's never really on the run at all. No. Although nah. he does have his cousin kind of like on him about the money that he took. Yeah. Uh, are there foreboding shadows? Hell yes, there are. Oh my gosh. There yeah, are this so movie, many. I know. But the one that caught my attention was this lattice work on the windows in their house, which makes it look like Lena is caught in a spider's web. Oh, that's such a good one. That was that's real a good. really good one. That was a good Another one. good one that I really loved was when uh, Johnny is taking the milk up to oh, and like the shadows yes. are just like long in the hallways yes. and on the stairs. Uh-huh. Very well done. Yeah. Uh, now, anonymous. Uh, Ominous staircase is what I meant to say. Yes, especially when Johnny is ascending the staircase with the milk. Did you see how white and like 
We gotta like, talk about that. We're gonna talk yeah, about it. Yeah, we'll okay. talk about it because yeah, yeah. it was crazy. Uh, is there a train? Yes, there is. Like <laughs> the, the Hitchcock loves trains. Uh, does a character whistle? Yes. <laughs> Cary Grant. He's whistling while walking to church with uh, Lena. Uh, was there at least one handwritten note? Yes. Lena wrote, I'm leaving you. She wrote that note, but she ripped it up at the end. Uh, did we see a newspaper headline? Yes, yep. definitely newspaper exposition where we see his best friend has, you know, died in, yes. while he was in Paris. Mm-hmm. And finally, gripping climax, possibly at a landmark, iconic landmark. No iconic landmark, but there was rather mm-hmm. insane cliffside speed racer thing happening pretty much. <laughs> uh, Lena thought Johnny was going to push her over the cliff and it was like a majestic looking cliff. I will say that. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the milk. Talk yes. about the milk. Yes. Now, here's the thing about that. That is, it's such a crazy shot. And Cary Grant is in silhouette. Yeah, and he's carrying silhouette. A glass he's black. Of, yeah, he's black. Like, you see his shadow, his frame. Uh, but he's taking a glass of milk up the stairs, and the glass of milk appears to be glowing. It's so bright off of the mm-hmm. screen. What Hitchcock did was he put a battery-operated light in the glass of milk, so it glowed ominously amazing fantastic. fantastic visuals yes yes okay the ending of this movie was a bit of a shit show drama yes. okay they went through a bunch of different drafts at one point hitchcock wanted the movie to end with lena's suicide but depicting suicide was discouraged under hollywood's production code so that was scrapped the idea was that lena would write a letter revealing johnny had killed her ask johnny to mail it thereby dooming himself and then allow herself to be murdered. Hitchcock wanted the ending to match the book with Johnny being guilty of murdering Lena, but the studio didn't want that at all. They thought that the public wouldn't accept a murderous Cary Grant. I do like what historian and critic Michael Wood suggests, though. We don't actually know if Johnny is telling the truth to Lena. He could still be planning to murder her later, which I fully believe. I can get behind a murderous Cary Grant, by the way. So could I, because he does have a look that could be very menacing, could be mm-hmm. very suspicious. And I don't trust that could, son bitch. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Now, the relationship between Joan Fontaine and Cary Grant was super contentious, just like her bad blood with Laurence Olivier. Now, Grant found Fontaine te- temperamental and unprofessional, and he was frustrated <laughs> with what he perceived to be preferential treatment from director Hitchcock. Uh, The experience filming suspicion was so bad that Grant and Fontaine never really reconciled. And when Joan Fontaine won the Best Actress Oscar for her role in Suspicion, Grant was incensed. He felt (laughs) snubbed and many thought she won the Oscar because she was snubbed the previous year for Rebecca. By the way, I can see that. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that, too. By the way, Hitchcock developed a penchant for reusing the same actors throughout his career like Cary Grant, Joan Fontaine, and Jimmy Stewart, who we will get to soon. Uh, Now, it does remind me a lot of directors from now who work with the same actors over and over and over again. Oh, yeah, it's certainly a trend. Yeah, like Scorsese Scorsese with De Niro, uh, Christopher Nolan with Tom Hardy, Quentin Tarantino with Samuel L. Jackson. They just keep using the same actors over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. They have favorites. Yeah, they have favorites. And so I kind of see that from Hitchcock's point of view here. Mm-hmm. According to movie historian Ben Mankiewicz, Cary Grant vowed to never work with Alfred Hitchcock again. 
But obviously, that, that didn't was a lie. <laughs> they made peace and did three other movies together, and we'll talk about two of them next episode. Up next, we're going to glance over Saboteur from 1942, which is the movie where the climax takes place on top of the Statue of Liberty. So check that box. Um, we're going to <laughs> we're going to just mention Shadow of a Doubt from 1943 and Lifeboat from 1944. Lifeboat was a particular challenge to film entirely in a lifeboat, and this attracted Hitchcock. It won him his second Oscar nom for Best Director. In the waning years of World War II, Hitchcock made a couple patriotic short films back in his native England, and then we arrive at 1945's Spellbound. Ah, yes, Spellbound. Uh, Spellbound is also a novel adaptation and stars the gorgeous Ingrid Bergman. Uh, as a psychoanalyst who quickly falls in love with the new director of the asylum she works at, and that is Gregory Peck. Uh, She begins treating him after realizing that he's suffering from amnesia brought on by feelings of guilt over committing a murder. We watched this one. Yes. What did did did. you... I want to hear your thoughts first. I think this movie... um, One thing I will say about all these love stories, the fact that they were happening so fast, like in oh the first like Lightning 10 to 15 fast. minutes, they are like professing their love. Fast. Yeah, like it's ridiculously fast. How Actually, all of it's them... faster than Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the first 15 minutes, they're already professing, I love you and stuff like that. So yeah, um, yeah it's too much or too quick at least. But mm-hmm. besides that, I will say that this movie does have a lot going for it. I really enjoy um, a lot of aspects. Uh, I love everything going on with Gregory Peck's character and what is driving him to, you know, the beat. Basically, what is going on in his mind that is mm-hmm. causing everything. And what I really enjoy, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but it's this uh, dream sequence that's right in the middle of the movie. Uh, right, right. Uh, that is in, it, that's pretty much done by Salvador Dali, a famous uh-huh. artist. And mm-hmm. uh, I, we'll talk about that in a moment. And but I, re- I really enjoy the movie. And okay. if we're looking at the end of the movie, <laughs> I don't know how I feel of the way they get to the conclusion that it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yes. I understand what you're saying completely. Right. OK. So what okay. what did you think of the movie? Then we'll talk what about the I final think? part. OK. I hated it. Okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. Um, I was watching the movie. I I knew that I hated it like immediately. Um, (laughs) It was just extremely annoying to me. I hated how fast the romance was. If you can even call it a romance. I think they just looked at each other and she was like, you're the one. Like it was like, she just imprinted on him. (laughs) It was like, no, (laughs) um, there was no relationship. I, I, just don't understand why she would even like risk her entire career to try and fix this dude and clear him of of a murder charge it was like ridiculous i had issues with all of her colleagues um i don't think this movie could be made in the way that it is now with all of her older gentleman colleagues coming in coming in and talking to her and kind of disrespecting the way she lives because she is so um upright and cold sexually toward them like they can't understand like why she isn't like paired up or have any sort of romantic interests like it just is like 
at one point, one of the doctors just up and kisses her, like at the yeah, beginning of the movie. Yeah, he just up and kisses her, and she's like fine with it. She's just like, okay, another Tuesday. Like, what the hell was up with that? No, I, I agree with you. The way she is portrayed in the movie as this cold, calculating. They tell her at one point a woman like you could never become involved with a man sane or insane. That's, yeah, what? I know. that's awful. <laughs> Um, there was a whole bunch of fragile masculinity in Pittsburgh when she goes to the hotel and apparently sitting down on a couch gives every man free reign to just come up and talk to her and harass her. Um, yeah. <laughs> the guy from Pittsburgh who literally is like sat in her lap and was hitting on her and hitting on her badly. Oh yeah. She's literally, she, he, he offers to give her, to buy her a drink. She says, no, thank you. And he gets offended immediately. You don't have to be so snooty about it. Like, as if she owes him for having, like, to have a drink with him. Like, no, what is that? exactly. It's, it's, it's not good. And it, that's a theme that I will say is that a lot of the women that we've seen in the movie, the different movies that we've seen yeah. from Hitchcock, definitely have this sense of they're being uh, either watched in a certain way very voyeuristic mm-hmm. that's one way yeah. Uh, yeah the way they're treated either they're gaslighted or they made to seem dumb or stupid yeah um, she's very intelligent so i don't understand is. the love story and i don't understand her compulsion to fix gregory peck like she's like i'm gonna treat you i'm gonna treat you making him push into these really painful memories if you can even call it that because he doesn't really remember he's just like i like he just seizes up like it doesn't it really bothered me how it was either all or nothing like either she's intelligent and cold and she has no romance or she's in complete giving over to her emotions and she's not a very good psychoanalyst all of a sudden yeah i mean at one point i get it at one point, her mentor was like, we make the best psychoanalysts until they fall in love. After that, they make the best patients. I know. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I pretty much was, it was like nails on chalkboard to me until the last 10 minutes. And then I was like, I, I feel this like a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. So let's yeah. go ahead and do our Hitchcock questionnaire. Hi. Is there a murder? Yes. Yes. Yes, Someone murders a doctor. (laughs) Yeah. Someone murders a doctor. Uh, Now, is there a blonde protagonist? Yes. Yes. Ingrid Bergman plays Constance Peterson. She's a blonde. Yes, she is. Is there a character on the run? Yes. They take off running for most of the movie. Yeah, pretty much. Is there any foreboding shadows? Um, In this particular one, no. Uh, but I will say, like, uh, an intriguing shot to me was when he has the blade, the razor blade in his hand. Uh-huh, and the way that shot uh-huh. was really, really effective. Well, that's so. the next question. Are there any ominous staircases? Yes. Um, yes. Because Gregory Peck walks uh, sinisterly down the stairs in the dark with a razor blade. And that's what I think you're referring to. Yeah, exactly. And now, is there a train in the movie? Yes, there is. They take it to Rome, <laughs> Georgia. Uh, <laughs> Stop that. Does a character does a character whistle? I don't think so. I don't, no, I don't remember anyone no, whistling. I don't okay. remember anyone whistling in this one. And now, was, was there at there, least 
one handwritten note uh yeah there were a bunch <laughs> there were a bunch of handwritten notes uh did we see a newspaper headline yes or no yes uh her picture was in the paper and everything gripping climax possibly at an iconic landmark no iconic landmark but we'll talk about the final sequence in a hot minute yes now <laughs> if we're gonna talk about the final sequence right yes um there's there's things that i didn't like about the final sequence and that bothered me but let we'll get to that in a second okay we'll get to it Uh, yeah we'll get to it so this was one of the first movies to deal with psychoanalysis and screenwriter uh, ben hecht he consulted many leading psychoanalysts of the day there's even a disclaimer at the beginning of the movie as well uh, saying yeah, that this movie yeah. does have that. Now, the producer, David Selznick, here he is again, uh, wanted the movie to be based on his personal experiences in <laughs> psychotherapy and brought his own uh, psychotherapist onto the set as a technical advisor. There was tension between the psychotherapist and Hitchcock, apparently yeah. just accuracy disputes. And at one point, Hitchcock said, my dear, it's only a movie. <laughs> I know. I think he just was basically like ignoring her the whole time. Pretty much. Um, Hitchcock didn't particularly like Gregory Peck's performance. Peck later said, I couldn't produce the facial expressions that Hitch wanted turned on. I didn't have that facility. He already had a preconception of what the expression ought to be on your face. He planned that as carefully as the camera angles. I'm going to have to side with Hitchcock on this one because I thought Gregory Peck's performance left something to be desired. He was like a freaking cardboard next to Ingrid Bergman. Uh, fair enough. And I will agree I about his performance. His, like, yeah. All of his um, uh, psychoanalytical, um, you know, freakouts that he had were just so hokey to me. He yes. Was like, and then like keeled over. Like, really? Where's the nuance? Like... I, it just didn't sell to me at all. So I'm totally with Hitchcock on this one as well. Fair enough. And I will agree because uh, Peck's performance, it's you're right. There's You're acting alongside someone like Ingrid Bergman who is so charismatic and so, you know, charming and just brings mm-hmm. you in. And Peck, it, it's kind of hard to match those two together. Um, but um, here's the thing that I really want to talk about. And yes. the movie Spellbound, uh, it features a two-minute Salvador Dali dream sequence. Now, Hitchcock was a huge fan of Dali's work. He thought no one else understood surrealist dream imagery better. So Selznick yeah, was, right. <laughs> yeah. So Selznick was against Dali because of the budget. I can't imagine how expensive it was, but he then got on board once he realized he could use it as a marketing gimmick. The scene was designed by Salvador Dali and was extremely complex. The production design didn't satisfy Hitchcock or Dali, so only part of the sequence was ever filmed. And interestingly, Hitchcock had little to do with it. Retakes director William Cameron Menzies from Gone with the Wind shot the sequence, and he was so disappointed (laughs) with it that he asked to remain uncredited. Jesus, uncredited. Yeah, I don't want any credit for this. Wow. Right? Can you imagine? That is hilarious. Now, it originally ran 20 minutes long. 20 minutes long. Could you imagine a dream sequence 
that long? 20 minutes long. Oof. I'd leave the theater. I, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but Selznick cut it way down to just the final two minutes. Once the dream <laughs> sequence got some praise and audience acclaim, Hitchcock was perfectly happy to take credit for it. <laughs> Damn. That's the way to do it, my Damn. friend. Damn. Sly. Okay, so let's talk about the final shot. Pun intended. Hey. Okay, this is what you, this is the ending that you wanted to talk about earlier, Rico. Yes. It's a perspective shot of the gun from the killer's point of view, pointing at Ingrid Bergman, Doctor Constance Peterson. The yes. hand with the gun then points right at the camera, and fires. I thought it was super cool and inventive. Um, the gun blast in the end was apparently hand painted to get that orange red gun blast, which obviously the movie was entirely black and white, so the orange red tint at the end was pretty special yes it was you did not like it okay let me go back this i did Do you like. like the lead up to that okay no okay. i don't like the okay. lead up to it i love that shot and i love the way it was shot and everything the perspective uh-huh. i like that because what they did was they montaged through gregory peck's like uh trial and incarceration for right. the murder of the doctor. Right. And then she's just left like, I've done everything I can. I stood, I, you know, uh, stood up for him in court and I tried to fix him and I couldn't. And I know he didn't do the murder, even though everything points to him being, yes, the murder. Here's my biggest problem with it is that the person who turns out to be the culprit, who is the old um, director of the mm-hmm. asylum, he is the culprit. The way they sh- basically pronounce that he is the one or the way the script brings him back into the story, which he was missing for a good long ass portion that you forgot that this guy wasn't even in the movie. Like yeah. nothing at all leads to <laughs> you to believe, oh, yeah, I could totally see how he's the killer, except that yeah. they, they like do an explanation like. Oh, it was because they took away your position, and that's why you had to kill the other doctor. But like, there uh, yeah, was it was nothing. it was a little chippy choppy, right? Yeah, so there yeah. was no indication early on in the movie, in the middle of the it movie. It felt like it came out of left field, exactly. And so that kind of was yeah. like really. So so this was the guy, okay. Uh, but okay. the shot is beautiful, though. <laughs> yeah, the shot's pretty good. Okay. Uh, Hitch was ultimately dissatisfied with Spellbound, even calling it just another manhunt story wrapped in pseudo-psychoanalysis. And after watching it, I tend to agree. Mm. Despite the dig and the bad relationship between Selznick and Hitch, the film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Director and Best Picture. It didn't win those honors, though. It ended up winning Best Music with Miklos Rosa's Rocha's score. The Hungarian compo- composer hated working with Selznick, <laughs> but his score for Spellbound featured one of the earliest uses of the theremin. He used the eerie instrument as the centerpiece for his score, and Hitchcock never liked it, saying it got in the way of his direction, which means it upstaged him. <laughs> Exactly. And it won an Oscar for it. <laughs> oh, man. He he must have been so salty about that. Speaking of theremin, if you want to hear a little more of us discussing theremins for some random reason, uh, you can actually <laughs> go back to one of our episodes, the movie First Man. Uh, we yeah. actually had a bit of a discussion on theremins in that one. So check that out in your podcast feed. Now, 
Uh, the next movie is Notorious from 1946. Yeah. It stars Ingrid Bergman. Here she is again. And wouldn't you know it, look at that, Cary Grant. He makes another appearance. <laughs> it's a tale of espionage and Nazis in Rio de Janeiro. We didn't watch this movie, but it is a bit more of a romance story between Grant and Bergman. Like those are like those are two Hollywood names there, like Cary oh, Grant, for sure. Ingrid Bergman. You know? Yeah. Uh, 1947 uh, brought the Paradigm case, which was Hitchcock's last film for Selznick. I mean, with all the arguing and back and forth, they did. I'm surprised they didn't stop Mm -hmm. sooner. Uh, It was a courtroom drama starring Hitchcock's favorite person, Gregory Peck. Uh, The movie was a (laughs) flop, though, and the partnership was shot. They never worked together again. Yes, Hitchcock then formed his own production company, Transatlantic Pictures, and his first film was also his first color film, Rope, from 1948. Rope is based on a real-life Buck Wild murder case from 1924. Two guys confessed to murdering a 14-year-old boy for intellectual thrill, and the two men were wealthy and well-educated. The two men did it to demonstrate their intellectual superiority, which they thought would help them commit the perfect murder. Rope is essentially the same exact premise, and it was adapted from a play by Patrick Hamilton, which makes so much sense because the film feels like a play with one setting where all the action takes place and the way it was filmed. More on that in a sec. Now, Jimmy Stewart stars as a former professor whose dangerous and irresponsible positive philosophy on murder inspires two students, Brandon and Philip, to strangle a friend with a rope to experience the thrill and superiority of the act and then throw a cocktail party over his hidden corpse. Now, you mentioned the way it was filmed. This movie is famous for Hitchcock's bold attempt at making it look like the entire thing had been shot in one continuous take. Now, in reality, it wasn't, as especially (laughs) with a movie of this length. The reason it was a series of uncut takes that were 10 minutes long each. And why 10 minutes? Because a movie camera at the time could only hold 10 minutes of film. So since Rope is an hour and 20 minutes, the whole thing is made up of about eight 10 minute takes with the brakes meticulously disguised. I'm going to argue that point, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if, if they were that disguised. If you zoom in on someone's, someone's black jacket. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's that disguised. <laughs> so what really did you harsh think of the movie Rope? It was pretty good. Pretty, good. pretty um, good. I'm fresh off of watching it. Uh, it felt like I was watching a play, 100%. Because sure. it, they were just in this one room the whole time. And people coming in and out, the camera following these characters, really kind of uh, everyday conversations that you would have at a dinner party, very interesting, simulating conversation drama because people showed up and you guys have history. And it was very much a very play-like experience to come into this movie. I liked the gimmick of having it be a continuous take. I think my favorite cut was um, when they were talking about the chicken at some point that one guy strangled a chicken and then they cut is a harsh cut on Jimmy Stewart's reaction. And then they keep the camera on him obviously. And then he moves about and the camera starts moving as well. I really liked that cut because it just wasn't so intentional Yes, that, you know, this guy kind of freaks out at the story of killing a chicken, which aha, a bird. Um, 
and Jimmy Stewart like latches onto the reaction. You can see him kind of the gears start to turn that he's like, what is going on here? That he had this meltdown in the middle of his casual conversation. So, um, yeah, I thought it was good. What'd you think? I really enjoyed this movie. I really enjoy the aspect of can two people commit the perfect crime or commit the Mm. perfect murder? Can they do it? Not necessarily will they get away with it. It's more like, especially one particular character, uh, Brandon, who is so enamored with the fact that he was able to do it that he kind of wants other people to know without them really knowing you know, and then there's the other <laughs> character, Philip, who is just like a mess who can't deal with it. Uh, and so it makes for an interesting back and forth of who is going to reveal the fact that they killed someone because someone's going to reveal it, whether it's Philip <clears throat> because he's so antsy and can't hide his emotions or it's going to be Brandon because he's so happy in the fact that he was able to basically think out and plan the perfect way of doing it. Um, OK. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed Jimmy Stewart. Uh, I like the way the movie shows him like kind of figuring stuff out as the movie is going Mm -hmm. along, as the party is working. He senses something's wrong. He's like trying to piece together things. He notices stuff. Mm -hmm. I really do appreciate when they have a character who's in tune uh, with what's going on and what is happening. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed that. You know what I thought about Brandon? Yeah. Okay. Brandon was like the main uh, dude that orchestrated the whole thing. The really um, confident killer. Um, So I thought if Bogey Lowenstein from 10 Things I Hate About You (laughs) was a dick, it would be Uh. this guy, Brandon, because of how he was dressed, how he sounded. It was just like such a yuppie. And uh, it was so annoying to hear him talk in his cadence, I was just like, oh, it smelled of just like ivy posh. Yeah, you know, ivy leaf white pompous more like it, yeah. Pompous, just all the bad things that you think of. Right. Uh, when you when think, you of, think like, of rich, like, affluent, you know, ivy white leaf. people. It's just, yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. Much. And yeah, so he doesn't, He, you know what I appreciate though? He does not come off as a charming figure. He does come off as, I mean, he comes off as a dick, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, he is. And they do a good job of trying to mask it, but at the same time, he reveals his true nature uh, while trying to mask what he's doing. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I I really appreciated that. Um, So overall... I did like the puns in the movie. Yes. I started counting them and then I lost count. Um, so uh, at the beginning, there was a joke about Harvard because they just killed David. And he goes, uh, Brandon goes, he's a Harvard undergraduate. That might make it justifiable homicide. Yeah. Jesus. What the so hell? terrible. So terrible. Um, yeah. I, I enjoyed the back and forth between uh, Mr. Cadell and the the aunt who was visiting and like oh, she yeah, couldn't his she could never yeah and she couldn't remember the name of like the something of, it was a, the something joke something yeah the something and then something plain something and you know it was you know she couldn't remember the details of anything and that was the joke of it and then and jimmy then, stewart got in on it too 
that was my favorite part is when he was like, well, I did remember I was watching something. I think it was called the something of the something or it was just <laughs> the something. And like just they're dead at her. <laughs> it was fantastic. Bro, it's so savage. It's so it really savage. was. And there's and moments. she didn't get it. No, she didn't get it. Like he's like taunting her and just yeah. he does she doesn't realize it. And I do like the way like when he's in a conversation that he doesn't really want to be a part of, like he has like this look of like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh I don't mm-hmm. really care what you're saying, but I have to appear right. like I care. And I'm going to repeat something to make it seem like I'm listening, but I don't really care about what's going on here. (laughs) So I really enjoy it. Now, we do have our questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Is there a murder? Is there a murder? Oh, yeah. Totally. (laughs) Like right in the first two minutes of the movie, they're murdering David with a rope. Um, And we see it. Like it's not like something that's off screen. Yeah, I did enjoy, I read this quote from Hitchcock. He said, I enjoy playing the audience like a piano. Oh, wow. And Philip, one of the murderers, does play the piano in this movie like he's a pianist. So I thought that was a nice touch. Is there a blonde protagonist? No, but Jimmy Stewart says at one point, I think a chicken is as good as a reason for murder as a blonde, a mattress full of dollar bills, or any of the customary unimaginative reasons. Uh, <laughs> That's a wild quote, man. I had to rewind, like, backed up the movie when I heard Blonde. I was like, what? Are you serious? Good so uh, definitely Hitchcock had a hand in that. Um, is there a character on the run? No. Any foreboding shadows? Not really. This was basically in the in the daytime for the most part, and then it kind of turns into the nighttime, and still they're inside with the lights on. Any ominous staircases? None at all. Is there a train? Nope. Does a character whistle? Never. <laughs> was there at least one handwritten note? Not a single one. Did we see a newspaper headline? Nope. <laughs> And then the gripping climax, or possibly an iconic landmark. The iconic landmark could be the New York skyline because they have a view of downtown from their flat. But the climax wasn't very action-filled at all, I thought. No, it was not. I mean, this movie is uh, actually, it's not action-filled at all. Everything is yeah. more on suspense and tension that yeah. the you know, and just the morbid sort of idea of what's happening because they're having dinner, eating right off s- of yeah. the top of the body because he's in a, a trunk where right. they were housing books before. And then they set up the whole table with the candlesticks and the food right on top of the trunk where they stuffed them in. And it's just, it's eerie. It's eerie because they're just going about their time. And then they keep asking, where's David? David's never late, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and I like, know. D- David's there the whole time. He's, oh, that's 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 a thought. Ugh. That's a creepy thought to think about. <laughs> now, um, yeah. let's talk about the actual like process of the movie. Now, from IMDb, since the filming times were so long, everybody on the set tried their best to avoid any mistakes. Now, at one point of the movie, the camera dolly ran over and broke a cameraman's foot. But to keep filming, he was gagged and dragged off. (laughs) 
wild. <laughs> That's so inhumane. Another oh, time, man. a woman puts her glass down but misses the table. A stagehand had to rush up and catch it before the glass hit the ground. And by the way, both of those parts were used in the final cut. Holy shit. <laughs> That's incredible because it was such a stringent filming. Like they had to stay quiet. They had to move out of the way of the camera and they had all of the stuff happening around them. It's def- It was like a play, really. Yeah. It's like a play yeah. because if, if you mess up a scene, you have to start all over pretty much mm-hmm. in that sequence. Yeah. So this movie is a philosophical quandary. Um, well, I shouldn't say quandary because there's nothing much uncertain about it. What they did was completely wrong. Murder is wrong. But good old Rupert, Jimmy Stewart's character, believes or at least spouts with incredible certainty that society should accept the casual murder of inferior people. It's a Nietzschean concept in which superior citizens can rise above morality and control the world and murder people as they please. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what did you think of that concept, by the way? I think that concept is so ridiculous. I think it's barbaric. It's bar- it's barbaric, even though like it tries to pass itself as high minded. He tries to be, f- yeah, and he tries to be funny about it because he says like, I think of the problems it would solve: unemployment, poverty, standing in line for theater tickets. Like, who do you think you are? And then he says that later when he finds out that they murdered David, he's like, Who do you think you are? Like playing God and murdering somebody for nothing like uh, what do you who do you think you are and that's what i think of the entire concept like how can you even entertain the concept and they they did it so much they harped on it so much at the dinner party that david's dad was like sickened he was like i think i'm gonna go check out the books like he was extremely uncomfortable with talking about murder as if it's okay right and obviously you and I, we obviously, and I think most people would say murder is not okay, but the way that it's presented as if, uh, there's like a right given to certain people that they should yeah, be able it was, to do it if they wanted to. Yeah. And in yeah. this climate that we were in today with, with white privilege and racism still being around, like it's so charged now to see this movie and have these two white boys, just kill somebody because they felt superior and they thought they could do it and they thought they were smart enough to get away with it. Like it was like, it, it's too much. I thought, what What do you feel? I, I think it, it's, if you're definitely viewing it from the lens of today and what's going on in the world. Yeah. It could be a lot to kind of take in just because yeah, of the it's fact really that, just maddening. I thought, yeah, it, it, it is because it's it's another case because you and I were both Hispanic. We are minority. And mm-hmm. we see, you know, in in a lot of our life, we see that there are people who get away with certain things because of certain privilege. Um, mm-hmm. You know, white privilege, you know, is a thing. Uh, and yeah. and whether you have experienced, I have experienced it or people that we know have experienced it. um this movie kind of leads, you know, gives credence to that philosophy of like, there's a lot of people who feel and of white, you know, Caucasians or, you know, 
that they feel that they are superior. They are the superior person and they can do certain things that other people can't. And this movie kind of, mm-hmm. you know, gives credence to Leans that into idea. It. And it's, yeah. it, it's, it's crazy because you think it can't happen, but it did happen. <laughs> right. It did it happen. It was a real true, like event. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they did it because of the intellectual thrill. That was the reasoning that they gave the real life story of why they mm-hmm. did that murder. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. which is crazy, but there's other things nowadays that happen that we see now that people get away with stuff because, you know, it was for the thrill or it was for, mm-hmm. you know, to see if I could get away with it. And it, it, it's disconcerting and it's disheartening. But at the end of the day, we are talking about the movie itself mm-hmm. and whether mm-hmm. it effectively did what it was trying to do. Okay, so let's quickly touch on the elephant in the room and uh, and it's not the dead body okay i thought as i was watching this movie that brandon and philip were gay did you think they were gay oh totally totally right 100 percent. yeah yeah i mean (laughs) the way that um basically the the back and forth that they gave each other the way they would speak in like this weird Okay, weird is not the word I want to use. Um, in this sort of intimate way, they would speak to each other. Like, they mm-hmm. not only have they known each other for so long, but they, and not only did they commit this crime as well, but there's like this sort of like relationship that exists between those two. There's a kinship two. there, and they yeah. went to prep school together, and I just, it was the vibe that I got between them. And when I looked it up after, it was all confirmed. Yes, it was all confirmed. was confirmed. Yeah. Exactly. Apparently, a few cities in the States banned the film because of the whiff of homosexuality. Uh, The screenwriter, Arthur Lorenz, was openly gay. And the two actors playing Brandon and Philip were both gay in real life. They they had same-sex relationships with uh, other men. Um, in their lives. Uh, the closest this film gets to being explicit is Brandon's description of killing David, which sounded pretty orgasmic, pretty much. Yes. The way he was, <laughs> he was so excited really about rough. it. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The follow-up to Rope under Capricorn from 1949 starring Ingrid Bergman, again, did terribly at the box office under Capricorn effectively sank transatlantic pictures. Hitch moved on and signed a contract with Warner Brothers, and that's where we'll stop for this episode. Um, Our next episode will cover 1950s Hitchcock, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. Um, We are not sure which four movies we're going to watch we have things to choose movies to choose from like strangers on a train dial m for murder rear window to catch a thief the beginnings of his tv show the man who knew too much the remake that he did in 1956 vertigo north by northwest so much filmography to go so please stay tuned we're gonna have a lot of fun on the next episode we had some fun on this one going through the 40s so rico What's next? How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I think that this has really give us, given us at least a lesson in movies themselves because we see so many things and now we can actually like 
point a finger and and actually put ourselves and really understand, oh, this is where it came from. This mm-hmm. is where this idea that, let's say, Jordan Peele had or or this the way he shoots this, you know, someone mm-hmm. like Ari Aster or, or, you know, any like either horror or suspense or thriller type of director. When you see mm-hmm. something on film now, you can understand, oh, I can see where they got the inspiration. Guillermo del Toro talks about a lot of the stuff uh, about Hitchcock. It's his, one of his favorite directors. And you can see the influence in his work. So it's great to see it. And I'm having a lot of fun diving into these movies. It's not mm-hmm. usually something that I do. And I'm really excited that we are doing it. So I will say that. Yeah. Now, Me if, too. This is, <laughs> if this is your first time listening to this Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app because we're only halfway through. We still have two more weeks of Hitchcock, so subscribe so you know when the next episode drops. Uh, We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, and many more. Uh, Spotify as well, don't forget that. Uh, If you do like us, here's an important thing. If you do like us, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way in for other people to, to discover us pretty much. And so go ahead and give us a shout out. Don't forget to check us out on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Always Critic Pod. Well, that has been our show. I'm Rico. And I'm Jessica. And this has been the Always the Critic Podcast. Bye.